Okay, here's so Linda. You ready? He's early. Oh, yeah. So much anticipation. <laughs> Hi, Linda. Hi. Good to see, Good you. to see your torso. <laughs> oh, <laughs> your head's cut off. <laughs> I'm, I'm, oh, you never know how this thing is going to move around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Awakening Lands, part of feeling and appreciating things that are bigger than ourselves studios. This idea of culture shift is just so critical because we can't solve these meta crises within the paradigm in which we're sitting. We're going to have to do something else. There's people all over the world who are really devoted in striving towards making change. There is something about these people who are working more systemically, who for whatever reason, maybe it's a, you know, an intuitive systems thinking or systems feeling they have. Maybe they have a background in ecology, but they're looking at whole systems and intuitively moving bioregionally. Yeah. There's not a common language or, or coherence amongst them, really. But, you know, this is it's really interesting when you look at bioregionalism or shifting to an ecological paradigm as like a developmental process from where we are. Yeah. We, we feel it's really, really valuable to point to the people who are exploring the leading edge of how that might happen, what the roles are that they're engaged in, the functions they're serving, mm -hmm. and then to bring coherence to the whole by them seeing each other mm -hmm. and seeing the nuances of that. Yeah. We don't have language. We don't have a shared language in, in many ways. And, exactly. uh, you know, that really determines so much about what you can think about is if you don't have the words you know, to be, to be able to describe it. So um, mm -hmm. I think I think having this conversation is really important and I'm so appreciative that you all are doing that. In this episode, we're joined by longtime Buffalo activist and educator, Linda Schneekwath. We explore a bit of what has made Linda such a dynamic voice and leader. We explore her ability to feel whole systems, to feel the soul of places, to feel the soul of Buffalo, and she provides potent stories of how a grassroots group of friends learned to speak for a river and how people have been learning how to create the support structures to come together for entire watersheds. We wrap up by touching on the need and potential in intentionally engaging with young people and how to cultivate active hope in all of us despite the challenging times. I do like to start from a place of gratitude so sharing what you're grateful for. We think that it's just a really nice starting point to enter that space of feeling grateful for everything around us. So well, would you like to share what you're grateful for? We I'd start be more off. than happy yeah. to share what I'd be grateful for. Number one, I'm grateful for to you two uh, and the whole bioregional movement. I, I have always felt like it's just so critically important. Thank you, all of you who are active and think about that and stretch your minds and talk to others about it. That's, that's one thing, one thing for sure. I'm also grateful for my family. I know it's, I, I live on a block with three of my kids and grandkids and, you know, it's like, it's just this amazing structure around me of support, which is, um, which is very important for all of us. I think at this particular time that communities, you know, nestings of communities um, are just, are, are critical and going to be more critical as we, you know, as these poly crises continue to unfold in front of us. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that. And I'm also grateful for my dog, who's really good company, although I don't have her here right now because she would surely, surely bark sometime during some important thing that <laughs> we were saying.
Yeah. Thank you for that. I, I, it's funny because, uh, you know, I always think of this ahead of time. The two things that I was thinking about this morning, uh, were one, the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm really pushing myself to like the financial limit to pursue what I feel is, uh, my calling, I guess. And this morning I was just so grateful for the people who were supporting me in that. Like right now I'm staying in Grand Junction at a friend's house, my friend Brad, who's letting me stay in this condo that's for sale. And he's jumping through all these hoops, you know, <laughs> to let me stay here because he's, yeah. you know, because he's a friend first and foremost, but I think also because he supports what I'm doing. But I was also thinking about my dog. I'm like, she's just such a trooper. She's always here. She's always in a good mood. It's funny. I was, you know, thinking about two similar things. So yeah. I guess we're synced up. Great. How about you, Anna? I think just the uh, the insight that talking to you and Margaret and Jay, who have this wealth of knowledge of the history of Buffalo, I am a fourth generation Buffalonian. So, you know, I hear a lot of stories about my, you know, my grandparents growing up, my parents growing up, all my aunts and uncles, we all still are here too. Pretty much everybody within my family didn't go any farther than Rochester, um, besides a, a handful of people. But um, it's just really great seeing like a, a another side of all of the stories that I've grown up with and hearing, I feel like I'm getting a really rounded view of the ecology of Buffalo. And why are things the way they are? So I've been really grateful about the opportunity to learn about all this. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and my mom's from Buffalo too, by the way. So there's, there's a connection here as well. So mm-hmm. and I'm learning so much. It's so interesting learning so mm-hmm. much about the environmental movement there. And even place uh-huh. Margaret told us about all these places. And I looked them up on maps and I'm getting to know this area. My, my mom is from, my grandma still lives. My aunt and uncle are still there. <laughs> It's yeah. just, it's surreal. I'm like in this strange dream space right now, getting familiar with this, this, this place that I have family roots in. It's, it's been interesting. That's, that's really wonderful. Yeah. Mm. I've seen in, in a conversation you had with Anna before, um, and I got a sense for, for the kind of person you are. And my impression was, man, she's determined and decisive. That was like my my big impression. And, and I'm wondering where the origin of that was. I grew up, of course, in a very, very different time. I thought I was born during World War II, which um, I'm sure for you sounds like it's ancient, you know, ancient history. I le- was born in Baltimore during the war, but we moved when I was very young to this farmhouse outside of Washington, D.C., next to a creek. And there were five of us. So, and of course, it's before television and all of those other things. So we were really free range kids. You know, we, we had the run of, of everything and it was just, just absolutely marvelous. So we spent almost all of our time at the Creek and that turned out to be one of the best learning experiences of my life. And I think has drawn me to water and my concern about networks because, you know, it was like the Creek, right? Um, and the woods around the creek. And I remember running through the woods and feeling everything. You know, it's like everything everything was connected. It's like it was this amazing experiences that I would have in the woods. And it was one of the things I think I learned very early on was that life is so much bigger than we imagine it to be. And it's so much more interconnected 
than we ever we ever thought. And that's always stayed with me. And I I think that having had that experience as a child was really, really, you know, significant. But also, I think it really made the big difference that I would wander up and down the creeks. And it turns out I grew up on the northwest branch of the Anacostia River, which, of course, I didn't know when I was a kid, um, but found out as I explored, well, this creek is connected to this creek. And then suddenly I began to understand how the whole system of water in my region worked as I moved into being a teenager. And that that was so significant. Um, because it has, I think, framed my thinking very much about ecology all the all the way, all the way going. You know, those are, I think, are two very important lessons: is that we're a part of everything, um, and that everything is connected. But I also learned something else that I think might might be interesting to people: is that I learned as I was growing up, things that happened to me were very, very personal. But I've learned over time that those personal things were actually a part of much larger movements. When I was an adolescent, because of urbanization, I found out later in suburbanization, they fixed the creek to stop the flooding, which meant, of course, they destroyed the creek. They took down the woods, they straightened the channels, and it essentially wiped out what had been our home um, as children. And I felt such grief about that, and it felt so very personal. But it wasn't personal. It was happening all over the United States of America at that particular time. It was like, we just believed that we could just change things. And here we are, this huge, massive movement, World War, post-World War II, into the suburbs, totally changed the water regimes in such a way um, that we had to do something about it. And But we didn't think about the consequences of what we were doing. I don't believe that we did at that particular point. That had a really big impact very early on feeling this incredible loss. And then the second thing that I think is, is emblematic of that is that um, my father died when I was 13 of lung cancer. Um, and it wasn't until many years later that we realized that he died of mesothelioma, that he was an, an electrician. He worked in the shipyards in World War II around asbestos. And um, Monsanto, who was providing it, knew that it was carcinogenic, but offered no protection. So very early on, this sort of injustice associated with environmental decisions became a part of my life. And I think both of those things had a, had a big impact on my growing up and decisions about what I did and how I finally, you know, became an, a, an activist, as well as a you know, a, a university professor. So those were the two things that gave me positions to be able to take some action in my life. Linda's early years of becoming intimately familiar with her watershed, of running through the forest and feeling profound interconnectedness, of loss of place and family to the realities of a populating and industrializing world, as Anna will point out, made Linda especially prepared for what was to come. The landscape mechanization and destroying, straightening waterways, um, using it for our benefit, and the health issues that come along with industrialization are so present in Buffalo. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I'm wondering if you can tell us the story about what brought you to Buffalo, New York. Well, I had um, got my degree in landscape architecture, which was great because again that's very systems thinking landscape is very very much about that and was teaching at Virginia Tech 
And my partner um, was working here in Washington, D.C. at the Department of Energy. Um, and we were frankly looking for jobs in the same place <laughs> and applied for a number of things. And it turned out that Buffalo, New York offered both of us a job. I wasn't convinced that Buffalo, New York was exactly the place that I wanted to come. I think I remember telling people that when they said Buffalo, New York, oh my God, you know, this was like 1982, shortly after the blizzard of 77 that everybody in the world knew about. I told them that I was just going on to the Peace Corps in Buffalo and nobody doubted that that was possibly <laughs> the case. No. Um, but yes, we, you know, so we moved to Buffalo with uh, two, my two kids and um and it and it was just a, it was a great decision it's been we fell in love with buffalo Im immediately um and we also um in addition to the university position bob and i um had a small consulting firm and we were hired as the consultants participatory consultants for the first buffalo waterfront study that happened in 1982 started in 1982 about the reuse of the the waterfront because the industry had all left. It was contaminated. It was, you know, just an awful place. And the question was, well, what, what could this be? And that was the first study that sort of asked that question. And hundreds of people in Buffalo participated because, you know, it's like things were really bad. You dove right into the activism. You brought this sort of systems thinking, this sense of systems and the whole and also this deep experience with your watershed. Yeah. Um, back in Baltimore and in, in Washington, DC. Uh, and so you were seeing the watershed of Buffalo as, as well, yeah. which is so interesting. And 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 you came into a, a particularly um devastated ecology. Yeah. Yeah. It it it's kind of hard to imagine now how bad things were in Buffalo. Yeah. At the time that we came, it was a depressed city. I think there's no other way, you know, I think that entities like cities can have those kinds of emotions. And if you think about it, in 1950s, like 600,000 people lived in Buffalo. What is it now? 275 now? Wow. You know, it's like, it's just, it's almost even hard to imagine some of the changes. And then uh, I remember 1985 that Bethlehem Steel closed. You know, they weren't committed to this place. They were... Mm. Right. you know, international, they, they were gone. And think about thousands of people out of work and all of the companies and the businesses and everything that supported those people. I mean, you can just start to imagine, mm -hmm. it makes it, you know, makes your heart hurt to think about how difficult that was um, for the people who were in the city at that time. That's where actually I met Margaret was around that sense of depression because we held a conference that was called The Spirit of the City where we asked people from all walks of life to come and share their experiences uh, of the city. And that was like people who were in the unions or Native Americans or people who lived on Delaware Avenue or uh, steel workers. And it was a chance to sort of sit down and, and listen uh, and for them to be able to tell stories of what their lives in Buffalo had been like. Our speaker was James Hillman. I don't know if you know his work, but um, he's an archetypal psychologist, and and he talks about anima mundi, the soul of the world, and he's and so the soul of places. It's no wonder that Linda was drawn to explore the soul of Buffalo as a place with the people of the community. To me, I'm reminded of her sense of connection to her entire watershed uh, when she was growing up. 
This ability to feel and relate to whole systems is essential for us all to cultivate, to understand how human communities can be truly ecological. And Linda certainly exemplifies this. How do you start addressing a place that feels that way and that people within that place start to feel that way? It became actually very challenging because, you know, how, how do you even begin to ask the questions of a city? <laughs> you know, that is, is feeling is feeling that way about itself. You know, like a child abandoned, you know, we, we did mm -hmm. all that wonderful stuff for you and the, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. We were in, we did bread and steel for God's sakes, you know, like the most basic parts of life and you're gone and we're, we're, we're just hanging out here. It's, it seems that there is a really vibrant uh, movement that's been happening in Buffalo for, for quite a long time. Certainly, there have been some really important events in the history of the, of the environmental movement overall. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering, was there something about the extent of the devastation that, that opened up the possibility for that? I think absolutely. I think that there was a vacuum. People who love Buffalo... You know, I think one of the interesting questions is, you know, can people love a contaminated place, you know, and something to be addressed. But, you know, people really love Buffalo. You don't just leave if you if you don't have to get up and leave. But then the question is, well, what do I do? And I think that what happened in Buffalo was that it's just like that opening that happened because most of the official regimes that were used to solving some of these problems, you know, were were sort of paralyzed that's you know there was a, a, a stigmatization on on our place and so nobody wanted to invest economically or whatever so how how as a community of people then do you start to take action it was like hundreds of little things it was not like one big movement that suddenly everybody figured out what to do and, and I can think of many organizations that started in the 80s uh, the one that Margaret and I were associated with is the Friends of the Buffalo River the Olmsted Parts Conservancy, the Western Europe Lands Conservancy. You know, there was a whole series of organizations that now are pretty powerful in our community um, that came up at that time. Um, Women for Downtown was one of the major groups that came forward. It's like, what can we do in our community to uh, to talk about the quality of the heritage, number one? It's like the Preservation Coalition of Erie County and the Landmark Society of the Niagara Frontier. All of these things started around this time because people were intensely interested in being able to give voice to the depression they were experiencing all around them. And think about that sense of abandonment. This is a defining characteristic of Buffalo, even in the present day. They were left with contamination while industry went elsewhere. And this experience has dissolved the illusion for many Buffalonians that so many of us in the wider modern world still live with, that so many of us can learn from in order to see the wholeness of ecology, that there's no such thing as a place called away. Our experience of these, these leftover contaminated uh, landscapes or our experience of of bad air from Lackawanna because of the Bethlehem seal. This was real. This is the, you know, you you felt this. So it wasn't a way, <laughs> you know, a way this place to which we send things uh, that if you don't have a planetary perspective, you can always assume that something goes away. 
of course, there is no away. My parents both grew up in South Buffalo, uh, not too far from the old steel plant. And my, my parents said that, you know, when you opened the uh, the windows in the morning, there would just be soot and all the debris from the air just gathered on your windowsill. Yeah. That was not abnormal. Um, and that was just how life was. But we're really become, we're kind of entering this world now where we're, we acknowledge the environmental impacts on, on overall holistic health as well. That's a really critical component to a healthy society. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you, and that's just a, that's something that you mentioned before as being a, a real um, motivator for you. So I'm wondering if you could tell us some of the, like the stories and the challenges of how like overall social well-being and the health of the environment are just so interconnected. Yeah, I, absolutely. Absolutely connected because it's like we are our environment. You know, where, where do people think they come from? I mean, you know, it's like it, it, it's from the food and the water and the air, everything you have around them. Is, we don't make babies. The earth makes our babies. <laughs> when we put things that are bad into our bodies, that's our bodies. You know, it's like it's it's not we're not separate from the earth. We're not separate from anything outside. And think about what um, Silent Spring did in terms of really opening up the understanding that the things that we were doing to ourselves was killing us. We're killing the birds, they're killing us. Silent Spring. Then specifically in Buffalo, there was another event that showed us that the way that we are treating our ecologies and our landscapes is actually killing us. Love Canal, which is right here, you know, mm -hmm. in our region, uh, was called the first in environmental disaster, not because it was, but because it was the first time that we actually recognized and named it as a human-caused disaster. Love Canal was one of the most significant events that framed thinking about what happens. Now, we know it still happens. It happens in places all over the world. It's happening particularly in other countries because we're just, they're expendable to our way of thinking, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, but we know better now. We actually, we know better. I mean, all that contamination, those 200 some tons of toxic waste are still up there and you can go up and see exactly where all of that stuff is. You know, it's like, it hasn't gone anywhere. Um, so I, I don't know what we, I don't know what we do with all that stuff, all of the, all of the waste that we have generated over the last, you know, 150, 200 years of, you know, whatever. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty mind boggling. Makes my head hurt. <laughs> Mine too. Belinda has done a significant amount in her time in environmental advocacy in Buffalo to clean up contamination, to give people a sense of possibility for another way. Where the Buffalo River came from was extremely industrialized, was not accessible to people who lived around it. And now it is, with the help of the Buffalo Niagara Waterkeepers, which is um, came out of your Friends of the Buffalo River, um, you know, it's a huge kayaking and canoeing and paddleboarding spot. People love to go down there. Um, there's a lot of regenerative projects that are replacing the hardened shorelines with, you know, more of those living shorelines. There's animals and wildlife there. And it still looks pretty post-apocalyptic because you're 
going through these abandoned grain silos, Mm -hmm. but it's almost like a sense of pride for Buffalo where it's like, Hey, let's go down to silo city and get dinner and sit on the water. And I'm wondering if you want to talk about your experience with, I mean, you were, you were the part of the group that started revitalizing it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it actually started from a bioregional perspective mm-hmm. when the uh, International Joint Commission um, developed their area of concern policy. It's like, you know, it, it, the Great Lakes were dead. Uh, and it's just amazing to think that 20% of the world's fresh water was in, you know, such dire, dire condition. They said, well, they're going to hit the point source pollution first. And so they developed this, this remedial action plan and and identified the 42 toxic hotspots on the Great Lakes. And we have two of them right here, you know, the Niagara River and the Buffalo River. And each of those areas were developed through the EPA to develop a remedial action plan. When they finally said, you know, okay, here's the plan. We have to clean up the contaminated settlements. We have to do X, Y, Z. We didn't quite trust the Department of Environmental Conservation to really do it. So we said, okay, well, we're going to form a friends group and we're going to just, you know, kind of keep bugging them all the time and make sure that they do what they said they were going to do. And people like Ken Sherman, who was um, actually a Lutheran minister, helped start the Peace Center, who's a, a, a really great organizer. Um, Margaret, myself, Barry Boyer, who was at the law school at that time. Um, there were a number of people in the residence. And so we we put together this friends organization, the Friends of the Buffalo River. So, I mean, we decided we would be the voice of the river. We would just keep the river in the public, in the conversation, um, developed really good relationships with people in City Hall. It's, we used whatever capacities that we had. And one was that we had, um, um, like my connection with the university, so we had access to students. So we did projects along along the river. We would meet with community groups. We developed a greenway plan. You know, what are the capacity of connecting um, people back to the river? We got um, a 25 foot setback passed um, for um, the protection of the water. So it, it got to the point, you know, where at least in the city of Buffalo, nobody in the city would do anything at the Buffalo River without calling the friends of the Buffalo River because uh, well, we did sue them once. You know, we certainly had the capacity to embarrass people um, if they weren't, you know, doing things properly. But this was all a part of that transformation that, you know, we knew that the industry was dead. There was no question about it. So, so what are we gonna what are we gonna do with this? And um, bringing the river back into our community was was part of the whole deal. And we were very fortunate that we had you know, a lot of support from DEC and the EPA, and there was mon- money coming in, you know, so when they brought this um, area of concern, they did bring financial support as well, so that the the people who were working on trying to restore it um, decided that, that this was a, a good thing that we should be doing that, and we're cleaning up the contaminated settlement. It took, though, almost 20 years before they actually did the cleanup, which is pretty astounding. It was the Friends of the Buffalo River who became the Friends of the Buffalo and Niagara River once we realized that nobody was going to be the Friends of the Niagara River if we didn't become the Friends of the Niagara River. They actually were assumed the management of this remedial action plan. And that's the only one across the country where a nonprofit as opposed to a government agency 
did that. So that, that spoke to the mm -hmm. capacity that we built over time. So you can start to see how kind of a group of scrappy people and we would have cleanups, you know, and have people come down and help get rid of trash and garbage. And we, you know, we took cars out of the Buffalo River, um, pianos and cows, you know, what you found in the river at that point was really, but it was also, it was also fun. You know, it's like there was, there was this element of, of joy of, it, you know, it's like if something's really a mess and you bring some order to it, it feels really good. You know, there's, there's a sense of a sense of accomplishment, you know. And so we had a lot of people who decided that this was really, a, you know, was, you know, not just isn't this really good work for us to do, but, you know, we're having a good time um, while we're while we're doing that. And I think that that built up a really large constituency. The Friends organization, you know, as it got bigger, it had to change. You know, you can't be a scrappy group of people. I mean, you know, it's like all these different things that were going on, the plantings we were doing. It's, if you're going to manage a remedial action plan, you have to be a responsible organization. So you start to see with all of these organizations that we talked about early on of becoming much more sophisticated and much more able to manage uh, you know, legal and and bureaucratic and and political context and stuff, and so that that I think was a natural process that happened that happened over time. But it's like I think about you know the tree plantings that we did. I mean, I don't think any of the trees that we ever planted grew because the soil was so contaminated, and um, you know, but those mugworts and those you know kind of wild species that came in. Um, they knew exactly what they were doing, those plants that they came in and they were able to, you know, sort of enrich the soils and do what needed to happen in order to progress so that now we can actually plant, you know, some of the native species uh, that are that grew there along the, the waterfront. I remember, I think it was like the 25th anniversary when one of the reporters came up and said, could you have imagined that all of this is, you know, wonderful stuff would happen? And I said, yeah, of course I could imagine it. <laughs> why else, why else would we have done it? You know, if we didn't absolutely believe that this river could be regenerated, if we didn't believe that we could have fish that didn't have tumors, you know, if we didn't believe um, that the water could become cleaner. Uh, so of course, of course we did. And this story that Linda just shared presents to all of us something of a masterclass in grassroots organization, in what a group of scrappy people are capable of doing. But it also shows us that it's all connected. But we also learned so much. We learned that the six miles that we were responsible for, you know, within the city of Buffalo, really, you know, a lot of the contamination was happening outside in the bioregion, up in the upper watershed, you know, and it's like you couldn't solve the remediation of the Buffalo River in Buffalo, you know. So now, of course, you know, now that the organization is much larger and has a much bigger region, including the entire Buffalo River watershed, um, it's now now decisions can be made about what has to happen upstream in the communities that you have to work with upstream as well as you know downstream and they're all a part of the Niagara River watershed which of course is you know connects the two the two great lakes well in speaking about beginning things and seeing things at the larger whole i think another huge contribution that you've given to the western new york area is bringing in 
the Western New York Environmental Alliance, recognizing that it's really critical for all of these different organizations to communicate and have some sort of shared agenda or purpose. And I'm wondering if we, if you could just kind of share for people who might be part of coalitions, what are some support structures that we could create to, that could support these larger narratives that we're looking at? Right. We knew we were having so many movements. This is like around, you know, 2005, 2008. There's so many organizations. We we moved from very few, or, you know, organizations to lots and lots of organizations. But there was not a lot of communication amongst those organizations. And we realized that we probably could do a lot more together than we can do separately. And so let's at least figure out what those things are and, and you know, figure some collective to do that. So. We could, you know, we found out that there were like 130 different organizations in, this was just in Buffalo and Niagara uh, counties that said that they were environmentally, you know, oriented. And we had a series of meetings uh, where we invited um, all of these people to come. You know, it was it was like a, a planning process, you know, that we were able to, yeah, you know, we, we know how to do those things and how we bring people in, how we help them raise agenda about what is it that you want to accomplish and and why and decided that yes indeed you know we really did need this kind of an umbrella organization because people realized that they really did not have contact with their peers it's really hard to think bioregionally when you know you and three other groups are doing kind of the same thing in your own communities but if you got together you could probably figure out how to help each other you know, advance what you were what you were doing. So that was one of the the main reasons that we we got together and got organized. And it was organized around a series of topics um, that the that the group had identified during the planning process. That you know talked about urban structure. We talked about transportation. We talked about contamination. We talked about climate. You know, so each of these different things and groups could decide whether they wanted to belong to one of these subgroups and those groups met every month subgroups met every month and during this early planning process um, i can just give you a couple of examples like the whole biking transportation the whole biking movement uh in buffalo was really reinforced uh by this you know by this collaboration of what was of what was going on of finding all the groups finding each other and now going forward and i think our biking culture is just amazing here it, it's it's really really wonderful um another thing that came out of it was that the city of buffalo was the first time in like 50 years redoing its zoning and putting together the green code um and uh members of our group were very active in getting issues like about local farming, how do we handle vacant lots? Um, how do we deal with climate? You know, so water issues and water, um, green infrastructure, all of these things got included in the green code in part because of the participation of the different various members of the Western York Environmental Alliance. So you can start to see how that kind of collaboration could really pull forward um, a lot of the expertise and experiences of people in the community. And um, I think it was, I think it was very, very successful in that way. Um, it has some structural problems because, let's face it, most environmental and social justice groups are just on the edge of making it, right? Yeah. Hardly making it. 
larger can feel like it's a conflict of interest. And this is one of the things that we've always had to deal with is that how do we how do we provide services without external funding, you know, as a yeah. collaborative? Collaboratives are really difficult in that respect because people are usually just pushed to their end to, to do their to do their major mission. But we've continued and we continue to find ways now with I think the 3030 campaign is going to be 30 by 30 is going to be a really um, a powerful way to bring people together to talk about how the climate and the uh, you know, social justice and the species issues all come together you know around this whole question about how do we preserve the fabric of life on earth which is yeah what we're really trying to do right now mm-hmm yes yeah looking high level, right? Because that's what we're doing when we're speaking bioregionally. Um, you know, in the conversations Anna and I've been having as we've been, you know, feeling into, uh, you know, how, how do we approach this uh, shift to an ecological paradigm to more bioregional ways of being together? You know, if we see this as like a developmental process, we see that we, we need to focus on support structures. How do we build one step at a time? You mentioned the Western New York uh, Environmental Alliance as a support structure that's weaving together these different institutions. You just mentioned 30 by 30, which I think in the Erie Niagara area is providing the sort support structure of narrative, of purpose, of direction to head in. Another support structure that Anna and I know you're really passionate about is providing the accessibility for young people who have the inclination, uh, the desire to be a part of healing the planet in their places. They, they need mentorship. They need access. There's so much that they need. And I wonder if we can explore uh, from your perspective as a you know professor, somebody who spends time with younger people uh, on their educational paths and, and uh, um, you mentor them. How do you see that? And, and what should we focus on so that young people can be regenerators? Oh, I think that that is so absolutely important. Um, and I also think that it's complex and difficult. Around 19, I guess, 2015, 2016, we, we um, gathered together a group of the people who were um, working with young people. Um, it was the Massachusetts Avenue Project, Grassroots Gardens, people who were working in, with young people in the environment. Most of these kids were involved in food issues, and um, a lot of them came from frontline communities, which I think was really critical and really important. Um, but the alliance, you know, decided that well, maybe we could put together a youth group of people who would, of kids, young kids who might be interested. And now this is in college age. I can talk about that in a different way because once you're in school and in college, it's a, a little bit of a different organization. Um, but we supported them for a number of years as having these young people come and they had all kinds of workshops. And this was, you know, Greta Thunberg came forward and was such an inspiration for, for young people. And they were very, very, very inspired um, and um, very competent. I mean, it's like, I, yeah, they needed, they needed help every now and then. But at the first conference is like um, Lorna Hill, who was working with us at that time. She said the thing that really grabbed her was the kids said, well, where are the grownups? You know, and it's sort of like, oh, that's the question. Where are the grownups? No. And 
So the, the, the sort of the kids just moved in and they did such a marvelous job. And one of my favorite, favorite things that they did is they actually pulled off getting the city of Buffalo to pass a climate emergency resolution. They work with council members, they visited their offices. And, you know, it isn't very often the teenagers go in and sit down with council members and try to talk to them and convince them that this is a really important thing that they had their arguments all, you know, very carefully put together. They had a um, survey, they had all the kids at school sign their survey and say how important it was and stuff. And one of the council members, Noah Kowski, who's still on the council, um, led the way and um, the resolution passed unanimously. I think it was 2019. Buffalo declared a climate emergency and talked about the need to take care of certain aspects of it. You can actually find the resolution online. It was a pretty wonderfully energetic time, but it also points to one of the issues of, of working with young people is that, you know, they all grow up they go off to college, it, you know, it's like, so unless you actually have a real substantive infrastructure in place, you, it's really hard to figure out how you bring new kids in and, you know, as the older ones graduate, but the kids are hungry for things like that. You know, it's like, yeah, a, a certain percentage of them are, you know, could care less, but some of them are saying, well, what can I do? And if you don't give them space, to what can you do, it becomes really a problem. And then the other piece of data that really seems to me really important is like this was during the Vietnam War. Um, they did a study of children whose parents were involved in the opposition to the war and children who didn't. And children whose parents are actively involved are much more hopeful uh, than kids whose parents are not paying any attention to what's going on. It turns seems like there's a generational conveyance is that if your parents believe that they have the right to take some actions and to do things that the kids they get that you started a book club based on the book active hope and it has continued and it's really a source of deep spirituality for a lot of people it's full of more healers people who have been counselors and psychologists and who have more of that that feeling um, that heart sense rather than the head sense of making the world a better place so I'm wondering if you could just share that um, what you think why you think having those kinds of support structures are so important first of all thank you thanks for bringing up active hope it's a really it's a really important part of my life Joanna Macy and Chris Johnstone's book active hope talks about what our sense of of both what hope is and what grief is. And uh, I remember reading Joanna Macy's book in the 1970s, or article by her that was about ecological grief. And that was such an eye-opener to me. It's like, because I'd never put language to, you know, my grief about the creek, for example. I, I It felt like... Oh, I, I don't know. It's like it wasn't wasn't permitted. There was no language that said it was okay that you would grieve for a creek or you would grieve for a place. Although people do it all the time, you know. It's like, but the, the the language is important. So when they wrote this book, it's like you know she talks about extending your sense of time. You know, everybody talks about being in the moment, and that's so critical. But it's sort of like your life is is just this big, and life, you know, it goes on 
you know, for three and a half billion years, you know, it's like, and, and the fact that you're even here is such a miracle because that meant every single reproduction in that three and a half billion years was successful and ended up with you, you know, it's like, it's, it, it's pretty awe-inspiring when you, when you start to think about what each life and each person here is such a, such a blessing and, and such a miracle. So yes, I think I think you're right. Many of the people who are in active hope are actually healers in some capacity, and that work with other people who are trying to deal with their own sense of loss and sense of grief about the planet, um, about their grandchildren, about the children. And so I think about the civil rights movement and the the you know the African American and the movement over the last you know couple hundred years of how hopeful. The black culture is still, in spite of everything that we've done to them, that they still live life of joy and in 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 great gratitude. I think about Native Americans, you know, who wake up every day with a sense of gratitude and you know their Thanksgiving address, you know, in spite of everything that's happened to them. It's like we now are in that position too, where our lives are being destroyed, that our children's future is not really assured. And that brings me great pain, but I can't let it paralyze me because if I paralyze, if we paralyze those of us who care about those things, then there's no communication. There's no no inter, interdependency, which is what we really are all about anyway. So um, the Active Hope Group has been kind of an ongoing place where we can come together and we can speak to those elements of grief and we can speak to our consciousness is not isolated. It's somehow embedded in uh, what Hillman calls the world soul, the anima mundi, that we're all a part of this one thing. We live in a world that denies the, what I would call the imaginal, you know, the imaginal that, that, that understands and places meaning underneath, you know, it's like I keep thinking about it as a, as a spatial thing, there's something that is underneath of everything else that is deeper. It's like our, we are, we are literally soil. You know, that's, that's where we, that's where we come from. This is not a metaphor. You know, land is, is alive and real. And um, it's like somehow or another, we, we've, we've othered, we've othered so many things in our culture. We've excluded so many other things in our culture that we have to find ways to bring these back in. And that happens happens in our relationship when we're in the natural world. And it happens in our relationship with other people who also are striving to see through this exploitive culture that we live in um, so that we can start to really understand what's important in our lives and and come back to the efforts of love. I mean, you think about it, that's, it's why why do people, you know, I, I said before, why do people, you know, do work on contaminated landscapes? Yeah. It's because they love. They they love the place. They 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 understand. They have a heart to heart relationship with things and with the people. And these are the things that bring us joy. I think we're entering a point in time where the Western quote unquote culture is experiencing more and more grief more and more it's no longer able to live with the way that it is and so i think that this is creating that opening for like a a collective awareness of how we can be part of something much bigger 
that's my sense. I feel like there's an opening right now that's occurring for like a collective spiritual awakening. I sure hope so. I feel it. I feel it as a possibility. I think I agree with you too, because then it's worldwide. It's like we can see in the resistance to the, the latest COPE meeting, you know, the latest climate crisis. Like people are just saying, we're not, we're not buying your narrative anymore. We're not, we're not buying into this anymore. You know, it's like that we believe something else. You know, we believe in our collective. We believe in our relationship to the earth. We, we believe in gratitude. Uh, you know, we believe in, as you say, there's something so much bigger than our own little ego world, our own group. You know, it's like, and I, I come back to, to my friend Agnes Williams, a, a Seneca teacher. And she says, our job is to get up every day and ensure that the world continues for future generations. It's a life of giving, it's a life of preserving relationships and people and land. Joanna Macy says, I'm so glad that I'm alive today. This is really hard, but wow, you know, we have such wonderful, good, loving work to do. And um, it's such a privilege and filled with gratitude that we're actually able to do it. How would our listeners be able to support some of the work that you've been doing? Maybe links to websites of groups that they can donate to or learn about, or yeah, how can how can they follow your story? Okay, well, I'll, you know, I'd be happy to to give uh, all kinds of things, places that people can give money to, and 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 certainly <laughs> your your group certainly one of them because I'm really really so glad, you know, pleased about what you're doing, but. One of the most important things is gather together with people who can support you and who can love you. It's like it can be pretty lonely sometimes. Um, you know, it's like you read the paper or whatever, and, and you feel I don't know about you, but I often feel assaulted, you know, in the course of the day. And um, and it's sort of like having having people around, you know, these are the things that I'm thinking about, and these are the things that I'm caring about. And this is what's happening to my family and this is where I need support and it costs us not to ask for support when we need it. So I, I think face with what's happening on earth today, uh, what, what's happening to the earth today, what's happening to our culture that, you know, it's like, it, it's really, really good to bring people together um, and to feel like you've got, you've got each other in some, in some way. really appreciate your time well i really appreciate your time thank you all very much and um it's been fun thank you yeah i yeah, enjoyed it too yeah looking forward to coming out to buffalo and meeting you yeah. i'll give you a hug or a fist bump whatever you prefer <laughs> okay thanks so much thank yeah, you thank so you. much okay yeah thank have you. a great day okay. see ya thanks for listening if you're feeling a jolt of inspiration if you'd like to support anna and me in our ongoing efforts to tell these stories, you can donate to us on our Patreon at Awakening Lands. Links for all this can be found in the show notes. Thanks, and please tell your landscape we said hello. Hello.